So we've been in this series talking about how Christians interact with society. And you can see some of the topics we've covered right here on the screen. Last week we ended talking about Christian political engagement and the pros and cons of some of the sides that come up in Christian political engagement. I was really trying to critique the way that Christians engage politics. I want to just bring up four points that came out of that discussion and something that's going to catapult us tonight. I said last week that the public witness of the church has largely become political. That's how people experience the church these days. We've become enamored with politics. Last week, Brittany pointed out a very key point. You know, politics can't solve all the issues. There are some things that politics can't legislate. For example, we can't do anything about quality, loss of decency, even poverty. I mean, sure, you can pass laws, but rarely can we actually address root causes. Number three, in my critique last week of both the Christian right and the progressive left among Christians, we saw there were a lot of similarities in the critiques of both of them. I'd encourage you, if you're on one end of the spectrum or another, go back and listen to last week's talk to get a better idea of some of the critiques that we did. But we saw that, really, they've been kind of ineffective. They actually suffer from some of the same mythological ideas. They still kind of operate under this idea of mythology and being against things and trying to grab political power rather than maybe being a little bit more true to what they can be as Christians. And fourth, I lament the fact that this focus on politics is taken away from our focus in other areas. We're so obsessed with winning the political day that we've lost a sense, we've lost a footing that Christians by and large have really no representations in philosophy, science, intellectual arenas, artistic, literary efforts. Maybe those would have even a greater influence on culture, but we're so obsessed with trying to change something or opposing something that maybe we forgot that culture is not equal to politics. Politics is just a subset. If you gave me a choice between being the President of the United States or running a major studio, like a television studio or a movie studio, to influence culture, I'd take the second one. If you told me I could write any laws, and just they would just be passed immediately, or I could write any television shows I wanted, and those would air on TV, I'd take the second one. Because that has so much more impact on culture, but we need to keep that in mind as we're engaging it, because I think Christians, again, they've lost focus on that. And we saw, I think in week four, when we are critiquing Christians' presence in culture, that we're not present in any of these places. I mean, yes, we're present in the church. But arts, media, business, academia, we're not there. We looked at the list of all the cultural engagements that Hunter had listed. We went down them and we saw, like, where are Christians really strong? Where are they powerful? Nowhere near the centers. Nowhere near the elite areas where they need to be. Most people look at it and say Christians are widely absent. Not to mention how cutthroat business runs. It doesn't matter if they're Christian in name. Like the business world is really cutthroat. Like, but there are examples of Christian business people who are, who are setting like some examples. But as someone like Hunter would point out, I was like, that's great. But in the overall schemes, if you look at the true people who have social capital to change the direction of the country, we're not at the table. For the most part, we're not at the table. All right, so I mean, if you're going to talk about even in the areas of business, like look at Wall Street executives at the highest level. Look at the rotating door that goes on between Goldman Sachs and the administrations of the presidents, Democrat or Republican. None of those people are included. That's where all the policy decision making is being made. We're not at that table. And, and I could go on and on and on. Look at all the people at Harvard Business School. Look at all the people who write for the big business journals. Like all those people, we're not there. 
Like we're somewhere else. Maybe we're the worker bees. Maybe we even own companies, but they're not the companies that change perception. They're not the companies that are at the cutting edge like a Microsoft or an Apple or a Google or any of those companies are just Chick-fil-A. Like that's the one I keep hearing everybody talking about, like Chick-fil-A, that's great. We got chicken. All right. <laughs> if you are going to engage in politics, we need to understand a little bit more about how to develop a framework and we're not going to obviously do that tonight. So I'm just going to recommend to you Ron Sider's book, The Scandal of Evangelical Politics. I, I have to tell you, I love Ron Sider. I love his writing. And this is probably some of the best writing I've seen in a number of books on how to come up with a Christian model for political engagement. Because a lot of people have tried to write books on what is a Christian view on politics, but what Ron has done is first begin by trying to understand what is the biblical narrative all about? How do we first understand what scripture is saying and how God intended the world to be ordered? And then we can start to focus on will politics give us a tool that we can use to accomplish these things? And one of the things he'll point out is we have to recognize that we live in a pluralistic society. We live in a society where even though we might want to use politics to accomplish certain goals, politics is an instrument of a secular state. We tend sometimes to think that if we can just hijack it for our own purposes, that we can bring about the kingdom of God here on earth. But politics, it's a discipline of compromise. It's a discipline where people necessarily compromise and they have to make a lot of those compromises just to get things passed, just to govern in a pluralistic society. So things will not always come out to the ideal that God wants, even if we could figure out the framework for what that is in every case. You know that reasonable Christians disagree. So that, of course, people who don't even share our faith will disagree even more about certain points. And that is the reason that we should not put our hope in politics. We put our hope in God. We put our hope in him. So I'll recommend his book to you for you to read as a way to kind of piggyback off this series and, and learn a little bit more about these things. The chapter on biblical justice in his book is worth the price of the book alone. It's just, it's excellent. I'm trying to come up with a way for us to go forward practically. We've thrown up so many ideas on the board in the last five or six weeks. I'm actually going to try tonight to prescribe something. Rather than just describe what's wrong with everything, I'm actually going to try to give you some steps that you might follow that'll be somewhat practical in how do you engage society. And maybe we could learn a little bit from some scripture tonight. That's what we're going to do. Maybe the big picture has been lost in all of our critiques of the way that Christians engage society. So let me start by going backwards. Everything is not broken in the church. I know that it's easy to take pot shots at things that Christians do wrong. And that's partly what we do in this group, is we spend time critiquing what's going on in the church to try to find a better way forward. But I want to remind us that everything is not broken in the church. And part of the work that God gives to us is to be culture makers. We are image bearers of God. One of the things is God is a creator. He's given us the ability to create, and we create culture. The arts... The sciences, even literature, even the academia that we put together, that's us creating culture. So we have a hand in it. As Christians, we can never really withdraw from it anyway. We might create Christian culture. You know, we talked about that. That's where you just take whatever the world is doing and just make it a little worse. And it's called like Christian music, Christian dance, Christian aerobics, whatever it is that somebody else is doing, just add Christian to it 
And somehow it'll be acceptable to all your friends at church, but everybody outside would go, what are you doing? What is that? But this is a gift that's given to all people. And this is one of the things we need to be very practical about doing within a church. We need to accept that God has given the ability to make culture to all people. He's given abilities and talents to all people. We in the church tend to denigrate efforts that are made by anybody outside of the church without recognizing that God's gift of grace is to give lots of people artistic talent, intelligence, scientific endeavor. There's so many things that create culture and they're not all created by the church. In fact, objective observers, not me, although I join in the chorus, would say that far more culture and far more beauty and art and science and literature is created outside the church and they seem to excel at it and that only makes Christians angrier. Somehow we have to negate it even more because of what we see instead of realizing that if somebody even can create art, literature, a work of you know, intellectual paper, anything they do, that's still the fact that God has given even those gifts. Now, I put up here that not all culture that's created glorifies God. In fact, people use those gifts to do things that tear down not only the prospect of God's kingdom, but even to go after and attack God's people. Do whatever. But we can't always start with negating everything that's out there just because we didn't create it. Or negating everything that's beautiful or artistic because it wasn't created by, like, Thomas Kincaid or something, right? And that's reactionary. It's not well thought out to actually honor the God who bestows his grace on us in a point that we could actually do this. We also have to understand, I've said practically, that culture making is not salvific. I think that most of us believe somewhere deep down inside we have the assumption that if we could just change enough things in the world, we could usher in the kingdom. If we could just make everything Christian and everything good and everything right, then the kingdom will come in. And we forget that this is not our ability to do. God will bring the kingdom to fruition when it is God's time to do so. So that's why when we say we're going to take back culture, we're going to change the world, what we're really saying is we're going to Christianize everything. We're going to make it like heaven on earth so that Jesus could go, oh, now that's a place I recognize and come back. It doesn't work that way. We're not able to do that. Because... God in his sovereignty and his timing will usher in his kingdom when he deems it is right to do so. And most of the culture we make, in fact, I would argue probably all of it, is going to be redeemed or just renewed completely anyway with a new earth and a new heaven and a new everything. So even if we succeeded in what I sometimes think our goal ends up being, trying to take it all back and remake it in his image, it's not going to succeed in bringing him back and it's not going to last if he does come back. All right, now there's some people who say that maybe some things that we create on earth will survive and be redeemed and restored, and I, I'm not trying to get away from that. It's too theological to get into tonight, but we live in this tension, but we're not going to be the ones that pull the trigger by just doing enough things to take back the world. And finally, a real stinging rebuke, I think, to some, including myself, is that even if you're able to become somebody who can influence culture, in a pluralistic world, there's this temptation to hide your Christianity right now. And you will encounter it the more and more you're able to influence culture. I feel it. You know that I've said this before. I've confessed it publicly. I teach at a Christian law school. And I've felt 
and succumb to the temptation to hide my own faith. And in places too, among my clients, in courtrooms and in elite law firms, there was a temptation to just not talk about those things and shelve those things because I was thinking I could be relevant to the world. I could actually have an impact. I could be somehow attuned to what's going on. But if I bring this up, it'll actually just make me go backwards in my efforts. And that's something that as we get closer to those cultural centers that might change culture, we find that temptation which we should resist. How did Jesus relate to society? This is going to be kind of the model that I hope we get after all these practical descriptions summing up everything that we've studied for the last five weeks. I've got five points on what I think Jesus, how he related to society. They're not mine, by the way. I get these from a synthesis from Hunter and from Ron Sider. If you look at Jesus' model, he got most of his strength, his power. Now, strike that. He got all of it from his intimacy and submission to the Father. And that's something we never actually think about when we're talking about how do Christians engage society. We're looking for, what did Jesus say about Caesar and taxes? What did Jesus do over here when he engaged the Pharisees? We're looking at like what Paul said about government authority. We're looking at what he said about people outside the church, but we don't go all the way back to think, where did Jesus actually get his identity, his power, his strength, his words? He actually says, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. That's John 12, 49 to 50. Completely in tune with the Father. That's the, the ideal that we would have. Not informed by whether we're American, conservative, ideology, whatever those things are. Not consumed by the causes we think or the passions we have, but somehow being able to be so focused and so attuned, or as John 15 would say, so much a part of the vine and so plugged in and so much abiding that we can actually feel and understand that everything that we're supposed to do is supposed to flow out of this relationship. Now, I know, we're not Jesus. We're not the second person of the Trinity. But if we're going to model our life after him, that's the ideal. We avoid the temptation to get it from somewhere else. Look at the shortcut that was offered to Jesus. The shortcut was, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Shortcut. The temptation of power, the lure of just getting to the end goal, the lure of doing it another way. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Everything derived from his relationship with the Father and his submission to the Father's will, not any other way that was possible. I know we find expedient ways. That's why I think I've called politics the lure of politics. It's right there in front of us. Like I could just change everything if I could just pass this law. Number two, Jesus rejected status, reputation, and privilege. In Matthew 20, 25 to 28, it says, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. 
and to give his life as ransom for many. Yes? And does the second point here go against your idea of trying to get to the cultural the influencers? I mean. It absolutely does. I have said, based on the research that J.D. Hunter has done, that culture is not influenced by just changing the hearts and minds of people. It's actually influenced by people at the very center of culture. Status, the elites, right? And then I'm saying, but Jesus' model rejected this. So you could hear me saying, answering a question that's been asked, so should we go into those elite areas? Should Christians strive to become Harvard-educated or Yale-educated or to get onto the Supreme Court since we're not represented anymore, at least in the Protestant side? Or should we be getting into like the elite places of media, literature, those things? I've paused because I know the model is Jesus rejected that. Now here's the twist. However, when Jesus came to choose the person who would write the theology of the New Testament and start the church, he chose a cultural elite. And I'm talking about St. Paul, who, if you look at his pedigree, his background, he, was, he says it himself. He says, like, I was a Jew of Jews. Like, I was the guy, right? I was educated by Gamaliel. Like, he goes on to recite his pedigree and his ability. So Jesus didn't just choose anyone. He chose somebody who was uniquely gifted, understood not only Greek, but the Greek philosophers, could argue, could argue with the Jews. He, he knew it all. So... I think there is definitely room for that within the church because it seems like that's exactly who Jesus met on the road to Damascus. But Paul, to twist it the other way, says all of this, all of my pedigree is garbage. It's rubbish. It's dung. It's street filth compared to who I am in Christ. So, yes, the wisdom of the world that's studied by Hunter from a Christian perspective is we will not change culture unless we're in those elite places. He points out that Jesus rejected all those things. So in the end, it's not the question of should we not go in those areas. You have to understand Hunter's bias. We shouldn't be trying to change the world anyway. That's not our job. I mean, our job is to live in this way like Jesus did. And you'll see when I get to point five, that's what he's actually arguing. So I'm glad you picked up on that because that's actually a very good point. Look, here's another place where we get a very strong statement of Jesus' rejection of his position that he could have had. In Philippians 2, 5-8, through 8, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Other translations say something to be taken advantage of, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Clearly, Jesus did not just sit in his status as God, but in this way, he enters into his own creation and endures suffering for us. Third point, compassion is what defines the power of Christ's kingdom. Here's a quote from Hunter. He describes Jesus not only in his sacrificial suffering and death, but in his time, attention, effort, resources that he gave to the needs of others. Caring concretely for those who are fearful, hungry, thirsty, poor, humiliated, despised, demon-possessed, discriminated against, confused, blind, sick, paralyzed, diseased, dying. It's not political power, clearly. We know that Jesus rejected that routinely. 
His own disciples expected him to take on that power. That was the messianic hope. It wasn't like they just made it up out of whole cloth. They were waiting for a new King David, a new political figure. He gave them this, compassion, suffering, servanthood, something they weren't expecting and even didn't understand even as he was dying. As they ran scattered, they were still trying to understand this power, this kingdom he's talking about, because it didn't seem like it was working out. Jesus was non-coercive with people outside the faith, something that all Christians, if we heard nothing else tonight, maybe we should pick up on. I'm not going to read this long verse, but from the book of Luke, you'll see that the disciples, when he was rejected in Samaria, when Jesus was rejected in Samaria, said, hey, should we just call down fire and burn these people? Like, right, isn't that the approach to culture we should take? Like, they reject Jesus, let's just call down fire and burn people, right? Jesus rebuked his own disciples and said, you guys don't even get it. You don't know who I am yet. But that is primarily the approach that we take when we negate culture so much. Like, we see something that we don't like and it doesn't match our understanding of who Jesus is, so we just immediately want to destroy it. We want it to be destroyed. Yes, there are some people in this country, if they had this fire call power, they would be using it. You know, this is the way we stop the secularists or whatever it is. They would just call down fire. And then they would be so prideful that they were right. So this last point is what Hunter calls faithful presence. He observes that Jesus practiced faithful presence. Now, what is faithful presence? Let me just speak to you in English before we go through these points real fast. The critique we've had is that the people on the right, they're just against everything. That's the critique, that's the caricature. I know it's much deeper than that. The critique on the people on the left is that they've been subsumed so much by what's going on, they've lost their own faith identity, they actually compromise their belief in the name of doing what they think should be done. And they're trying to be so relevant to reach out to others that they've actually lost their distinctiveness. Those are caricatures, but those are the camps that are painted. And those who want to withdraw, the caricature of them is probably they've withdrawn so they have no effect anymore. You know, they have a lot of things to say, but since they're in their own camp, nobody's hearing it, and they're not able to affect anybody because they've withdrawn. Those are the three characters. What Hunter is saying in this one is, if you want to affect society in any way, do what Jesus did and be a faithful presence. In addition to the four things I have, the fifth one is be this faithful presence. Realize what the mission of God was especially in the Incarnation. God has always pursued us. First, before we pursue Him, He's always been the pursuer. And He's continually pursuing us. God identifies with us, especially, again, in the Incarnation. He steps into His creation. He understands our joys. He understands our sorrows. Tempted in every way. Suffered. He offers life to us. In the present world and in the next. It's hard for us to do both of those. We're either one or the other. We think all life that Jesus offers is about the next one, or we think it's all going to happen here, like we're going to make heaven on earth. It's both. But he's the one offering it, not us. He gives us a way to live the way we were intended to live in this world until the next one is ushered in. And we have life that is truly life, is what John 10.10 says. And his way is sacrificial. Okay, so tonight has been mostly me talking because I finally have to prescribe rather than let you guys give me your feedback.
Look at the screen for a second. We have a Lord that we are supposed to follow. We're supposed to be disciples of a God who gets everything from the Father, rejects status and all these ideas of privilege, exercises compassion over and above everything else, not trying to exert political will, doesn't coerce those outside the faith. We saw the verse that we read also when Paul says the same thing, that I'm saying this to you in the church, not to those outside, because I don't expect them to follow the same standard. And then Jesus practicing what God has always done. And so the thing I would do to add my voice is, I think this is what the church should do. I think that's the answer for us. In our lives in society, we should be pursuing others first and continually. Pursuing others in love, by the way. Not pursuing others with a track in our hand to convert them. Pursuing others to love and live with others wherever they are at. That's hard for me. I'm kind of an extrovert, but it's hard for me to pursue others and insert myself in a place where I can pursue others. I'd prefer it much if they came to me. God is a God who pursues us first. We know that it's not that we love God first, but that he first loved us. And we should model that same kind of outward love that's constantly not just saying, I love other people. No, I'm actually pursuing them in love. That's an active image that you should put into your mind. How is it that I can pursue others in love the way that God, from the beginning of time, is constantly, and to this point, pursuing all of us? We identify with others in their joys and sorrows. Like where we actually enter into the midst of their lives, their joys, their sorrows, the way that Christ entered into his creation and also endured and sat with every place that we have been. That's what we can do to be a faithful presence in this world. We can offer life. And that's a loaded word. There are so many ways we can offer life physically. We withhold life from people. Do we recognize that? How often the ways that we make choices about consumption, the ways that we make choices about what we're going to spend with, we're actually withholding life from people that we have the power to give life to in a physical sense. It could be as simple as sponsoring somebody. You'd be actually engaging in an act of giving life to someone. But it's more than that. We are also the people who are entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel to give life in that way, in a spiritual sense. We can give life in this world, in a holistic sense even, in sitting down with people and meeting other things, and in the life to come. We can be people who affirm that kind of commitment to life. And then, as you've seen me say over and over, if we could ever understand the sacrificial love of God, if we could ever understand the nature of dying, yes, giving ourselves even to the point of dying, which is what Jesus was saying when he said, this is what true love is, right? This is what a person would do to lay down their life for their friends, like giving ourselves unto that point. Because in the end, our life is not here. We're aliens. This is not our permanent home no matter what. Even if you love this place, we're going to leave this place. It's not where we're going to end up one way or another. 
So his idea of sacrificial love is to give, to serve, even unto death. Now, would that change culture? You know, that's a big question. Part of the reason that this is being proposed is because all the other ideas really have been ineffective. So I think that's a critique even of this, is that you might think, well, that sounds really churchy. I don't see how that's going to change anything in culture, but maybe that's why the end of Hunter's book is, I don't know that we can change culture. I don't know if that's our mission. Our mission is to do this, though. Because this doesn't depend on whether we're going to change culture or not. Will it work? That's the wrong question. The right question is, what did Jesus do? And if I'm his disciple, what do I do? And this would be a formulation of what I would do. Because that's what he did. And that's how he approached it. Let me close with this tonight. Going back to us being aliens so that you can leave with a word picture. In the time of Jeremiah, the Babylonian Empire had swept down and taken the Israelites captive. There was a lot of prophesying going on, some of it not so true. Some people thought that they were going to be in Babylon for two years and that was it. But the word comes to Jeremiah that you'll be here for a while. In fact, he prophesied 70 years, a couple of generations. That didn't make him very popular with the people. They wanted to listen to the other people who said, no, this is a temporary setback. You're going to go back to the land soon. Jeremiah went even further and received this word from the Lord in Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Nobody liked this prophecy. If we were all taken exile right now or taken captive and put somewhere, most of us just want to go home. The last thing we want, a prophet to come up and say, the, I just talked to God and his answer was, settle down. Relax. In fact, plant a garden. You're not going anywhere for a while. Let's have some weddings. Let's have some kids. In fact, I want you to increase while you're here. These are not the kinds of things that people want to do. They're angry. They're upset. They want to take back Jerusalem. They want to do all the things. And I think that we're in a very similar situation right now. I don't think it's a surprise to us that Christianity is in decline in the West. I don't think it's a surprise to any of us that we're living in a post-Christian world. I don't think that it's a surprise that many of our own faithful people are going to fall away as we rub up against more and more pluralistic society. Our faith is going to be tested. Our ability to remain faithful and follow Christ is going to be tested. Some will compromise their faith. Some will compromise their action. Some will just walk away. They're just too confused. They don't understand how this could all work. This was a confusing time in Israel's history as well. And the prophecy was, seek the peace and prosperity of the city 
which I have carried you. If we are aliens and strangers, as First Peter says, if we are somewhat in a captive place where this isn't our home, and all around us what we see more and more is something that doesn't look like where we're supposed to be, let's remember that most of us are waiting for the new Jerusalem as well. It's not just them. That's our hope. That's our future. That's what's waiting for us is to wait for this coming of the Lord. may not happen in our time. may not happen for another thousand years. But the point is that's what we're longing for. That's what we're told to wait for. But in the meantime, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord because if it prospers, you too will prosper. If we live faithfully, and I mean faithfully like this, in the midst of the people that we have been carried into, in this country, in this time, in this place, in this world, then we need to live the way our Lord did. And the outcome will be whatever it is that the Lord desires. He's still in control. He's still at work in the world. We're still the body of Christ. And if we live faithfully the way that he did, then I think that's the best way that we can impact people around us by being the church, which means being the body and doing these things. Okay? That's my prescription for living in society. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, I realize that saying that we're disciples is so easy to just tumble off our lips, but it is so hard to live out through daily failures to even remember that we are your disciples, through struggles to understand what it means, through our broken nature, through our open rebellion to you, Lord, in places that we refuse to give our life over to you. And sometimes, Lord, just not even understanding how to do it. There are so many obstacles, but Lord, you have given us a deposit that guarantees that we are sons and daughters of the King. And that deposit is the Holy Spirit. You've told us that the Spirit resides in us, that the Spirit is present here in this room, in the church, around this globe, doing your work. So Lord, we are not asking this by our power tonight. We are asking it in the power of the Spirit that you would actually make us disciples. That means being like you. In discipline. And whatever it takes, Lord. Lord, your ministry on this earth was short, but it lasts forever. The Spirit. We pray, Lord, that we would take that earthly example and live it out. You, Christ, are our head. We are your body. May we be empowered to live faithfully and to impact culture and society and those around us simply by living as a disciple of Christ. Praise your name. Amen.